0: Welcome to Salt Company, y'all. I am so glad that you guys are here. Hey, if we haven't got a chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew and I'm the director of Salt Company here and I have the greatest job in the world. So I don't know what you guys are going to do with when you graduate, but if it's not lead this ministry, you have like at least a second place job, maybe lower. So... I love it. All right. Hey, if you guys have your Bible, you guys can turn to Romans chapter four. That's where we're going to be at tonight. And if you guys are new to Salt Company, that's kind of what we do around here. Thursday nights, we sing some songs to Jesus, not because singing's my thing, because it definitely isn't, but because Jesus is worthy of it. And then we open up the Bible and we just hear what God has to say to us. We think it's like, way more important that we hear from God and what he has to say than I'm just up here like kind of wheeling out a bunch of my ideas. So Romans chapter 4, if you guys like have the Bible open there, you can put either a finger or a pencil or a ribbon or something in that and then turn all the way back to Genesis 3, which should be like the second page of your Bible. It's going to be one of the first chapters. We're going to be in both of those tonight. And while you guys are turning there, uh, I just want to like, orient us where we're at because the series that we're in it's called the story of the bible. And so for 4 weeks we're going to be looking at the whole bible beginning to the end. What is the story of the bible? And while we're doing that, while we're kind of zooming out and kind of hey, what's the big picture of the bible and Christianity? We're answering this question. What is the purpose of the world and what is the purpose of my life? Like, what's the purpose? How did the world get here? Where is it going? How does that impact me and the way I live today? And no matter what faith background you have, no matter what like spiritual history, no matter what worldview you have, everybody has to give an answer to that question. Everybody in some way has to reconcile like, all right, why is the world the way it is? And how does my life and my story fit into this kind of like whole thing that's going on here? And actually what we've seen is that the Bible doesn't shy away from this question. It actually answers it straight up. And it answers it in a way that isn't incredibly clear. And so let's look. Actually, I have a quick graphic, I think. Did that graphic make it in there of the story of the Bible? Maybe not. We're a brand new ministry. Sometimes things go wrong. Nope. All right. (laughs) Nailed it. All right. So we don't have a graphic (laughs) where we were week number one. We started at the beginning with creation. All right. And in the beginning, it's very clear. The world did not get here by chance or by coincidence. It was on purpose by a creator. And this creator, he had a good purpose and a plan for this world. And it was really good. It was a good design. There was nothing wrong. There was nothing broken. But clearly that is not the world we live in today. And actually something happened from God's original good design to take us to where we're at now. And we call that the fall, kind of the fall of humanity, where we fell away from paradise. We chose to reject God and his design. And in doing so, we subjected the entire world to sin and brokenness. And last week we looked at that. David taught, and it was a little heavy handed, wasn't it? Like it was kind of hard. We like maybe left here feeling a bit sad, a bit overwhelmed. But you guys, that's what happens and we like look right into the face of the thing that's like messed up in our life. Like the, the, wor- the way the world is, is not how it should be. And when we look at all the ways that brokenness manifests itself, the hurts we feel in our life, that's like a really weighty thing. And I hope that last week, as you guys like left, maybe feeling a little bit sad or even a little bit weighty, that what that did in your heart is actually create a longing for something better. Man, I wonder what God's gonna do. How does God actually address the things that are wrong and broken in the world and in my life? And that's our answer. That's the question we're going to answer tonight. And these passages are a couple of the most profound passages in the entire Bible because it answers that question. What does God do with the brokenness and evil things in my life? How does God respond when he looks at a world that is full of sin, that is full of people who have disobeyed him, in a world that is full of things that are totally wrong and totally contrary to his design. How does God respond to that? What does he do? And we see that first in Genesis chapter three. So if you guys have your finger there, Genesis chapter three, verse 12, it says this. Genesis three, 12, the man, God asked them, it's like, hey, what have you done? And the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And on your belly, you shall go and eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall crush your head, but you shall bruise his heel." All right, so God, they, humanity literally makes the worst mistake ever. They eat the fruit. There was like one rule in the garden, don't eat this tree. I've given you literally everything over here. It's a creation of abundance, but don't touch this one thing. It's going to go very poorly for you. Adam and Eve are like, sweet, that's what I'm going to do. They eat it. And in like the moment of like the worst mistake of their life, God comes to him. He's like, Adam, what have you done? Because like David talked about last week, when Adam did that, he like introduced something really terrible into our world. And as God like looked down the scope of human history, he saw all the terrible consequences that were going to come from that. He's like, creation will never be the same. Adam, what have you done? And Adam's like, yo, it wasn't me. Like go to the woman, like the woman you gave me, she's the one that ate it. And God's like, all right, like Eve, what have you done? And he was like, no, it wasn't me. Like the serpent, the devil, like that's the guy. He deceived me. Like that's the reason I ate. And then God turns to the serpent. And later we learn that this serpent is Satan himself. So it's literally the devil that tempted them. And what did God say to the serpent? After this like kind of heated moment where humanity makes the worst mistake in the history of the world, God turns to the devil who kind of like instigated all this. And he said to them, he, he told them two things. Number one, he said, because you have done this, verse 14, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. All right, he tells them, hey, kind of the immediate consequences of a thing, you're gonna crawl on the ground like a loser, all right? Who does that? Like crawling on the ground, what a terrible punishment. Like that would suck. No arms, no legs, you're just wiggling around all the time. Like, all right, immediate consequences for Satan, you're gonna be the one on the ground. You're gonna have to slither, all right? And people, when they walk around you, they're gonna kick dust in your face just to throw shame on you, all right? Like kind of dust in the faith was kind of a cultural thing of like shame and dishonor. So God's like, you're gonna be like lowly, you're gonna be a loser, you're gonna crawl around. That was kind of the immediate like ramifications for the devil, But this second one is actually really important because this is the one that changes our lives today. What's the second thing that God told Satan? Verse 15, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what God is saying to Satan in this moment is he's saying, hey, there will be one day in the future where there will be enmity, or like opposition, this like rivalry, this like intense competition between you and somebody later on that is born of the lineage of this woman. All right, he said, somebody's gonna come, somebody's gonna be born at a distant day in the future and he's gonna come and you're gonna bruise his heel, meaning you're gonna like deliver some sort of blow to him. But this man, this guy who's coming, the seed of the woman, he's gonna crush your head and you're not gonna recover. He's gonna kill you. And this evil thing, kind of this sin, this brokenness that you brought into the world, I'm going to crush it. I'm going to defeat it forever. And I'm going to use a very specific person to do it. The first thing out of God's mouth to Satan is you're going to crawl on the ground and one day I will defeat you. Which is awesome, you guys, because given the circumstances, think about what just happened. Adam and Eve literally just made the worst mistake in the history of the world. They subjected the world to all sin and all brokenness. They disobeyed God. They messed up his creation. God would have had every right to be angry at them, to judge them, to punish them. And yet, what are the first words out of his mouth? He says, I'm going to crush this thing. This evil thing that happened, this thing that introduced sin and brokenness into the world, I'm actually gonna do something about it. You guys, it's actually amazing that God would respond in that way, that even in the intensity of the moment, kind of heightened emotions, he is still like, I promise, I'm going to crush this thing that entered into the world. And what do we learn about the character of God? Don't miss it. We learn that God's reaction to our rejection is to redeem us. We learn that God's reaction to our rejection of him is to redeem us, which is crazy, you guys, that God's reaction when we would disobey him, when we would spit in his face, when we would do things we were never supposed to do is not to judge us, condemn us, or throw us in hell forever, but it's actually to have compassion on us. God's initial response, like what do you think the knee-jerk reaction of is? his like internal guttural response to you and the bad things you do in your life? It's not a heavy-handed judgment. It's a compassionate, beckoning home. And you guys, some of you need to hear that tonight. And some of you like really, really need to hear that tonight. That the things you do, even when you make the worst mistakes of your life, God is not out to get you. He's not out to make you pay for it. And he's not out to make you earn your way back to him. No, he holds out his hands to you in compassion. If any of you have a story like mine or a story like my friends from high school, even people who grew up into church, college became this time where we made, and I saw my friends make literally the worst decisions of their lives. And I saw them go off the rails and the God they said they followed or the faith they thought they had in high school was like totally non-existent. And they did terrible things that they never thought they would or even could do. And maybe that's you. Maybe college was this time where you're gonna like kind of keep your faith or like, hey, I'm gonna, I really wanna follow Jesus. And then you got to University of Michigan and it went rough. You started partying, you started doing all these things. And now you kind of like live with this low level shame and guilt thinking, could I ever come back to God? Like God's just mad at me. Maybe he's super, God's probably super disappointed in me. It's all Company, that's not true. Saul Company, if God would have had a reason to be mad at anybody, it would have been Adam and Eve because they made decisions way worse with way worse consequences than you ever could. And yet, the first thing he does is promise to get rid of the very thing that they hated in their life, which was their sin and their rejection. Our God is a compassionate God, that is really good news for us. He's not angry at you. Now, how is this possible? Seriously, how is it possible that God could see the worst thing that humanity ever did and could look at us in our lives and see the worst things that we've ever done and just choose to forgive them? Does he just like sweep them under the rug? Does he like look the other way and pretend like they never happened? No, not at all. The reason it's possible For God to forgive us of our sins and at the same time not sweep them under the rug is because of what Jesus did on the cross. Flip back to Romans. We're gonna see how this flushes itself out. Romans chapter three is where we learn how it's possible that God could actually forgive us of our sins. Romans chapter five Starting in verse six, it says this. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one might even dare to to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What did it say? It said that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's response to their brokenness that day in the garden and God's response, Response to the brokenness in our lives today is the same thing. It's one of compassion. It's one where He looks at you and says, I'm going to love you regardless of the things that you have done, and I'm actually going to move towards you. And unlike every other relationship in your life, God's love for you doesn't waver based upon what you do. Isn't that crazy? That's like almost unfathomable that God could love you in a way that isn't based on what you do. I love all of you guys. I genuinely do. I feel like I can say that with like being honest. I love you guys. However, there is some things that you could absolutely do that would make that love wane. All right, number one, there's a number of things. I'll just list a couple. Number one, you could come to Salt Company week in and week out. We're like talking, hanging. And all of a sudden you bring up my mom. And for no reason, you're like addressing her with obscenities and insults and stuff. I'd be like, what the heck, dude? What a jerk. I don't like that guy anymore. Like love gone. Like, no, don't talk about my mom like that. Or even worse, you could be coming for Salt Company for weeks and weeks, and if I find out you're an Ohio State fan, oh my gosh, vomit. Get out of here. I don't like you. No one wants that here. All right, go blue. Come on, we hate Ohio State, don't we? Go blue. There we go. All right. There's things you can do, like be an Ohio State fan that would genuinely make me not like you anymore, all right? I just wouldn't, okay? It's not like that with God, all right? Like, okay, let's admit, you guys are laughing at me. We all have that stuff, okay? We're not that good at people. There's things that people could do to you that you wouldn't love them anymore. It's just, just what's true. It's not right, but it's true. You guys, it's not like that with God. There is nothing that you can do to him that is so bad, so awful, so against him, well, he will not look you in the eye and say, I love you anyway. Because actually all of the evil and all of the bad things you've done in your life, he dealt with those in a different way than doling it out on you. He sent his son, Jesus, to die. And G- G- God's love for us is just the opposite, actually. It doesn't, he doesn't waver when we reject him. And actually God's love and affection towards us is strongest when it's tested. See, love that isn't tested, love that is like only like met with obedience and reciprocity, that's not love that's tested. But God's love is both tested and proved for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he doesn't distance himself from us, he dies for us. And this death, this death that Jesus died for us in our place, it's not just a normal death. It actually does something really specific for us. Did you see it in there? Look back at verse nine, what did it say? It said, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The death of Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. The death of Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. And as soon as like the Bible says something like the wrath of God or like God's wrath, I get people might have like a trigger warning for some street preacher or like some weird things going on like ooh wrath of God. That's a weird thing. But here's what it means. I'm going I want to clear it up. God having wrath just means that he loves the world so much and he loves you so much that when sin and suffering and injustice begin to hurt and destroy the very people he created, he reacts passionately. God's wrath just means that he loves you and he loves the world so much that when things like sin, like temptation, like injustice, when that comes in and begins to hurt your life and hurt the world, it makes him angry, just like it would anybody else who has ever loved somebody. Y'all, if I went home tonight and somebody or something was hurting my wife, Laura, the like rage and violence that would explode out of me would make news headlines tomorrow. All right, I've got one life and I'm not afraid to spend it in prison. Okay, if you hurt my wife, I will end you because I love my wife more than I love my own life. You guys, she's amazing. I love Laura And actually, if I were to see her getting hurt, the wrath and anger that would be stirred up inside of me isn't evidence of hatred in my heart. It's evidence of a deep, deep love for Laura. And it's the same thing with God. The fact that he has wrath, the fact that things make him angry isn't evidence that he's just this hateful God up in heaven. It's evidence that he loves you. And things in your life that hurt or destroy you make him angry. And so God, he does have wrath against sin, against evil, against things that are messed up in this world. And it makes him want to destroy it. But in order for God to fully destroy sin, for God to totally just eradicate sin in this world, he would have to get rid of everything and everyone that has sin inside of it. To get rid of sin totally, he would have to crush everyone and everything that has sin inside it, or he could take the sin of the world and he could take it out of us and he could put it somewhere else. And because he loves us, he chose that option. And instead of destroying us, and instead of crushing us and the sin inside of us, he actually took it away from us and put it on his son, Jesus, on the cross. And all of his anger towards sin And all of the guilt and all of the evil in the world, he took that away from us and put it on the one person who could actually bear the weight of it, namely Jesus. And Jesus took all of our sin and all of that evil and he took it with him on the cross in his death and in the grave. And that's what God does with the evil in our life. And then three days later, Jesus came back from the dead Left that sin, left that evil in the grave, locked it away forever, and now offers us righteousness and forgiveness. You guys, that's the gospel. And that's the way God deals with the evil in our life. He actually invites us to give it to Him, to put it on His Son and trust in His Son for forgiveness. God's solution to the problem of evil in our world is to give it to the only person who could ever bear the weight of destroying it, namely Jesus. And on a cross 2,000 years ago, he did just that. It's amazing. Now, if you're any bit logical, you're wondering this question how the heck is that possible? how can some dude 2,000 years ago, even if he's Jesus, actually take my punishment away from me? Like, why is that the thing that saves us? Why does that count? Like, why is that fair? Why does it count that Jesus died in my place? Well, anticipating that question, the author of this book, he actually keeps going. Look at what he says, Romans chapter five, verse 12. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Skip down to 15. We saw that last week. Adam sinned, so we all sinned, 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So he begins with the story from last week. He begins with Adam. He's like, hey, Adam, he represented all of us in the garden. And actually all of humanity was on the hook for what Adam did. And Adam messed it up big time. He blew it for all of us. And the thing he introduced was sin. And now all of us are under that. All right, he ate the fruit. He sinned. He made our world broken. He was a terrible representative, you guys. And so we don't want to be represented by him anymore. We're like, no, not Adam. I want to throw that off. Like not a good representative. But we can hardly represent ourselves before God, right? Because honestly, we're not that different from Adam. And all of us have something inside of us that has messed up in some way. And when we think about it, we're actually not that different than Adam. We probably would have made the same mistake in the garden. And so if we don't want to be represented by Adam, because he totally blew it, and we don't want to represent ourselves before God, because we know we're not perfect. We know we've fallen short. We need someone else to represent us. Someone else who is perfect. And in the craziest thing that has ever happened in the history of the universe, God himself steps down to earth and says, I will do it myself. I will represent you. And I will come as a man and I will live a perfect life in your place. And I will represent you and all of your sin, all the things in your life. And I will die the death that you deserve. And when I come back from the grave, I'm gonna wrap that life and death up and give it to you as a gift. So now, when you stand before God when you die, He doesn't look at you and look at all your good and all your bad and make some assessment if you've been good enough to get in. No, if you make the choice to be represented by Jesus, God looks at you and no longer sees you, He sees Christ. And He sees His perfect life given to you as a gift. Isn't that amazing? that God would actually let Jesus Christ represent you before the throne room of heaven. You guys, this is a free offer that is literally available to every single person in this room. The only reason that I'm going to heaven if I die tonight is because Jesus is representing me, not me. And he wants to represent you too. He offers it as a gift. And so now the question we ask in our lives is not whether or not we need somebody to represent us. It's who is gonna represent us. Is it gonna be you? Do you wanna try to show your resume to God or are you gonna put your faith in Jesus and ask him to represent you? Because he wants to. Guys, that is how God solves the problem of evil in your life. He takes it away from you, puts it on his son on the cross and leaves it there so that you could walk away from it. It's the good news of the gospel and it's free for us all. Guys, I'm gonna invite the band up here, but I just wanna think a minute. A lot of us, most people in this room, we're gonna get the opportunity to go away together for the weekend. And here's my prayer for the weekend is that these next 40 hours starting tomorrow night would change the next 40 years of our life. And then actually, as we get away from Ann Arbor, as we get away from school and studying and roommates and kind of all the outside noise, maybe our phones don't get service there. Some of you, they're like, oh no, my phone doesn't get service. It might not, all right? It'll be good for you, I promise. (laughs) Some of you, as we like get away and actually get around God and his word, we're gonna have like basically four salt companies in one weekend and a ton of fun and a ton of like craziness in between that. But my prayer for us is that we would see this God who didn't stay in heaven, who didn't just like let us wallow in our evil, but this God who came down from heaven to die in our place and that we would see him for the God that he is and we would be so moved and so like amazed at his beauty and what his son did for us on the cross that we would never be the same. You guys, I am so excited for this weekend and I'm so excited for what God might be doing in even in your heart tonight. Will you guys pray with me?